Hello, my name is Millie Long. I'm at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I'm a gastroenterologist in the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center. I had the pleasure of presenting at a symposium called Reaching Beyond Anti-TNFs for the Therapy of Ulcerative Colitis with Miguel Ruggiero from Cleveland Clinic and with Bruce Sands from Mount Sinai. And together we talked about uh, some changing paradigms in the treatment of ulcerative colitis. And I think first and foremost, we have to figure out better ways to identify which patients are at risk for more aggressive disease. And so one of the things we talked about was emphasizing that it's not just what the patient's symptoms are now, um, but whether they also have risk factors for more aggressive disease. And also we need to take into account individual characteristics of that patient's past treatment history in defining what would be best for that patient. And so I'll give you an example. A patient may be having five to six bowel movements a day with intermittent blood, does not sound that severe, but if you take into account the fact that the patient has required prior corticosteroids, is very young, had deep ulcerations on past colonoscopy, those are risk factors that this patient has more aggressive disease potentially even than the symptoms they're mounting at this moment. So when you take into account all of these factors, I would argue that instead of looking at disease activity, we're looking at disease severity to help to guide how we treat those individual patients. And we used a couple of patient examples uh, in the symposium. And we talked about uh, what various classes of medications are available. I think uh, most gastroenterologists are well-versed in the treatment of anti-TNFs uh, for moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. This has been a mainstay of therapy for some time. We have three in that uh, field. We use infliximab, we use adalimumab, and we use golimumab. But certainly we now have newer agents that allow us in those patients uh, who don't respond to those therapies, or perhaps obviously these therapies are also approved for first-line uh, use in individuals with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. There are scenarios where we might, where we might use these ahead uh, of the anti-TNF. And so let me talk about uh, two of the newer uh, classes of medications. The first is the JAK inhibitors. And the first one we have to market is tofacitinib. This was approved uh, just this past summer for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. And it's a small molecule. Um, because of that, uh, it's actually also oral, uh, which is nice for our patients. And it seems to, in the Octave studies, which brought this, uh, this therapy to market, it really seems to work pretty quickly, uh, which is another uh, nice aspect, where in some instances, we may be able to avoid uh, some of the corticosteroid use uh, for induction. And the therapy itself also doesn't have immunogenicity. And so this is nice uh, in that we would not use this in combination with another therapy. So there are no immunomodulators that we would use. There are a few safety signals with this drug that we do want to take into consideration. One of the things we reviewed at the symposium is kind of a, a treatment uh, management uh, algorithm when you are initiating someone on tofacitinib. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, one of the things that you can see with tofacitinib is you do see an increase in lipid profile after initiation. But interestingly, it's both the HDL and the LDL that go up. And so often this doesn't uh, necessarily confer additional cardiovascular risk. The recommendation is to check a lipid panel at eight weeks and then to use uh, cardiology standard guidelines to help us to know whether to start the patient on an anti-lipid agent. The, the other aspect to this therapy is there can be some infectious risks. And the one that we're seeing with more frequency is actually herpes zoster or shingles. And now shingles has been seen in association with multiple other agents as well. For example, we've published data that show an increased risk, particularly with corticosteroids, also with azathioprine and, uh, and with the anti-TNF agents. 
But we certainly see this signal with tofacitinib as well, and it does seem to be somewhat dose-dependent. So the higher dose of tofacitinib, the 10 milligrams twice daily that we use for induction, we use that over the first eight weeks, actually is associated with somewhat higher risk of herpes zoster as compared to the five milligrams twice daily, which we can then back down to for maintenance. And so with this in mind, I always counsel patients about this risk. And certainly the nice thing is, is that we do have a vaccination now. We actually fielded a good number of questions during the symposium about that vaccination. There's some shortages now, but hopefully that will be overcome soon. Uh, but this is an inactivated vaccine against herpes zoster that actually has much greater efficacy than the previously available uh, live vaccine. So we have a vaccine that's not live, can be given to patients on immunosuppression, and is more efficacious. It's given in a, a two vaccine cycle, you give it at time zero, and then you give it again um, anywhere from two to six months later. And so in my practice, I try to give that first dose uh, when I'm making the decision to start the tofacitinib and then subsequently follow them up per the appropriate time interval. Now this vaccine is only uh, approved in the general population for those aged 50 and older. So I'm giving it to all patients aged 50 and older, but certainly in those individuals younger than that whom I'm starting on tofacitinib, I am having a risk-benefit discussion about whether or not this vaccine is something they may want to receive at a younger age. At this point, it, it may not be covered by insurance at that point, so it's something definitely to discuss with the patient, but something that we can consider given this, this risk uh, profile that we've seen. And so again, an infectious risk, but certainly something that could be preventable with appropriate vaccination techniques. The other uh, interesting aspect to this herpes zoster risk is it does seem to be more prevalent in Asian populations. And so certainly in Asian populations with that higher risk, even in younger age groups, I'm, I'm really discussing this vaccine. Other monitoring, um, we certainly do monitor CBC, liver function tests, just like we do with uh, many of the other agents. And if someone has uh, severe anemia or significant hepatic dysfunction, tofacitinib is likely not the right drug for them. Um, but um, and we screen out those individuals. And, and this drug can be used, again, in both first line, but also in this beyond anti-TNF after TNFs have failed scenario. And so one of the things we also discussed was um, kind of some indirect evidence from a network meta-analysis. And this network meta-analysis helped us try to compare therapies across, um, across studies. As you know, unfortunately, we don't have head-to-head -head comparison effectiveness randomized control trials um, really in uh, Crohn's disease or in ulcerative colitis. The one exception to that uh, is in UC, in UC, the UC success trial. And that trial looked at infliximab as compared to azathioprine as compared to both infliximab and azathioprine. And what that trial showed is that the combination with infliximab and azathioprine actually had higher rates of mucosal healing as well as clinical remission. And so this is something that I do commonly in my practice. But that's it. We don't have other comparison, uh, comparisons in terms of head-to-head -head randomized controlled trials. And so therefore, uh, this recent network meta-analysis used the indirect evidence from the clinical trials um, to help us to try to make some of these comparisons. And in, in this um, comparison, in terms of uh, efficacy, their efficacy and safety outcomes, certainly um, efficacy, it did seem that anti-TNF was, was quite good. Um, other agents, including tofacitinib and vedolizumab, um, subsequently. And then um, in the anti-TNF failure population, it actually seemed that tofacitinib um, came out on, uh, on top. 
one of the things that's interesting in a lot of the data we see in both Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis is that with the biologics, after that first biologic, the second biologic seems to have a diminished response. Um, and so this may be one reason why switching to a small molecule could be something uh, you could consider. Other classes beyond TNF, um, vetalizumab. So this is a great uh, therapy in terms of safety. It also does, uh, does well um, from an efficacy standpoint, um, but really it shines from a safety perspective. It's a gut-specific medicine, so it targets alpha-4, beta-7. It's an anti-integrin therapy. It's given via infusion uh, at weeks 0, 2, and 6 for induction, and then every eight weeks. And vetalizumab, we have more and more data in terms of both real-world data, um, reanalyses from some of the uh, clinical trials, the Gemini studies that brought uh, this therapy to market. We've been using it since about 2014, and, and really since that time um, have, have demonstrated excellent safety signals. Because of its gut specificity, we have not seen um, malignancy risks. We have not seen infectious risks. Um, there was some concern um, initially in the clinical trials because it was an anti-integrin, would there be a risk of PML, uh, you know, progressive um, multifocal leukoencephalopathy, a brain infection? And actually, uh, that has not uh, been the case whatsoever. Natalizumab, um, its cousin drug, in Crohn's disease has been associated with PML. In, in use in ulcerative colitis, um, there has been one case of um, PML, but this was a patient with HIV uh, who also was on significant immunosuppression, and the case was actually thought to be related to that and not to uh, the underlying vetalizumab. And so from an efficacy standpoint, again, randomized controlled trial data, um, superiority over placebo, um, good efficacy in a similar range to um, the TNFs and other therapies. And so this therapy also can be used either first line or second line. And there are specific subpopulations that we talked about where I would really consider this drug uh, first line. So for example, an older patient where you're concerned about malignancy or infection risk, vetalizumab might be a great choice uh, in that population. Uh, other examples, uh, a patient um, uh, who, um, again, safety being the priority, um, is most interested if they had had a prior malignancy themselves. This is someone that we want to potentially try to avoid uh, systemic uh, immunosuppression and take advantage of the, of the gut specificity. And so this is an agent, again, beyond anti-TNFs that we can use um, for both induction and maintenance of remission in ulcerative colitis. One of the other things we talked about at the symposium is uh, some new data that were just presented at the ACG meeting uh, just actually about two months ago in Philadelphia. And my colleague Bruce Sands, who actually chaired this symposium, was the one who presented the initial induction data for ustekinumab. So as you know, ustekinumab is actually approved for the treatment of Crohn's disease. It's an initial IV infusion with a, a weight-based um, strategy. And then after that, subsequently, it's 80 milligrams uh, subcutaneously every eight weeks for maintenance. And so, um, again, uh, we, it was approved in uh, 2016 from a Crohn's disease perspective. We have uh, a good experience with it for that. But these are the first data showing efficacy uh, in ulcerative colitis. We don't have the maintenance data out yet, uh, but again, the induction data looked quite good, similar to other medications. And this will be an excellent option for our patients uh, as well. 
uh, ustekinumab also seemed to have good safety signals uh, from the data, not only in the um, Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis development uh, data, the safety profile was quite similar uh, to placebo. We did not see infectious risks, malignant risks. Uh, but also, uh, importantly, uh, the P-Solar registry, which is a psoriasis registry uh, for uh, ustekinumab, which has been approved in psoriasis for some time, um, has shown no, no uh, significant safety signals associated with this therapy. Um, so yet again, um, providing us with, with another option for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. And so now that we have this whole arsenal, we really are trying to target based on the individual's um, clinical scenario in terms of their symptoms, their risk factors for progressive disease, and considering specific factors um, surrounding the individual. For example, if someone had significant um, extra-intestinal manifestations, uh, they had a bad psoriasis uh, potentially associated with uh, inflammatory bowel disease, I might use an anti-TNF or, uh, once it's approved for ulcerative colitis, ustekinumab, uh, because I'm looking more systemically to control that inflammation. So we talked about a lot of those types of scenarios. One of the other things that came out in the case discussion um, was uh, we talked about a case, um, a patient who progressed, as I know uh, you all have seen in your practices and I have seen in mine, um, from mild uh, to moderate to then severe hospitalized ulcerative colitis. And once that patient hits severe hospitalized ulcerative colitis, um, they have a very high risk, of course, of uh, going to colectomy. So we talked about strategies where we could optimize therapy for them in that specific population of acute severe ulcerative colitis. And so in those individuals, uh, they come in, uh, we do a flexible sigmoidoscopy, they're quite inflamed, their CRP is quite high. We initially initiate IV corticosteroids, um, and in those individuals who don't respond, we really need to think about uh, another agent uh, to help to induce and then potentially maintain remission. So we talked about two options here. Uh, you can use infliximab um, or you can use cyclosporin, um, a calcineurin inhibitor. And the, calcineur the cyclosporin has been around a long time. But importantly, we now have a couple of more recent studies that have really showed non-inferiority uh, to infliximab. And so this remains a viable option in terms of treating the acute severe ulcerative colitis patient. However, it's a little bit difficult and wieldy because there's a lot of laboratory monitoring, there's some contraindications, and cyclosporin really should only be used for induction. You then need to move on to a, a different agent for maintenance, most often uh, azathioprine, for example, uh, for maintenance of moderate to severe, severe ulcerative colitis. However, uh, the case I presented um, actually had already been on azathioprine, so we knew that would not be a good exit strategy. The patient had already failed azathioprine, and so we used infliximab. One of the important considerations about using infliximab for acute severe ulcerative colitis is that there are scenarios where that patient may completely waste that drug uh, in their stool, actually, meaning they aren't going to maintain appropriate therapeutic levels that will hopefully help treat the inflammation and, and reduce their need for colectomy. And so there are some factors that are associated with kind of increased clearance of the infliximab. And in those individuals, we likely need to increase the dose and shorten the interval to be able to maintain an effective level. So what are those factors? Um, so interestingly enough, um, males, um, people who have a higher BMI. And one of the things I really look for is uh, people who have a low albumin. And those low albumin patients who really have pancolitis, that's quite significant, What's been found is that the drug, um, initially their level goes up, and then they lose drug uh, in their stool, and so they're not able to maintain an appropriate level. And so we talked about some retrospective data that have been published that have looked at, at an intensified uh, dosing algorithm for the treatment of ulcerative colitis. 
where you're using uh, more frequent infusions. Uh, we also talked about some survey data that show that gastroenterologists are also using higher doses uh, of infliximab, again, to just try to maintain that level. And interestingly, in the retrospective data, it really showed a marked difference at prevention of colectomy at three months in terms of using this accelerated uh, dosing regimen as compared to the standard dosing regimen. And so how do you operationalize that in your practice? Well, I'll tell you what I do in my practice. Uh, again, this is, this is based off of retrospective data. We don't have randomized controlled trial level data. But even the, the, the long-term um, follow-up, you know, this is a way that we can hopefully help to save some of these colons. That said, uh, an important aspect of any algorithm of treatment of uh, acute severe ulcerative colitis is involvement of the colorectal surgeons. And I really do that right away, kind of when that patient is put on steroids, so that they can help to follow with you, help to find the indications for um, medications have failed and now it's time to proceed to surgery. And so with collaboration with the, uh, with the colorectal surgeons, you know, in appropriate scenarios, I will dose intensify the infliximab. And so with, um, with this, what we do is we monitor the CRP, that really hot inflamed patient with a high CRP. You give them a dose of infliximab. In my practice, I'll often give 10 milligrams per kilograms as that initial dose. And then you monitor their CRP. And when that CRP starts to plateau again, and again, initially it often goes uh, really quite down, starts to plateau, that's often a proxy for that drug level um, really getting quite low in their system. And then you dose again. Um, and, and that, that accelerated regimen that I discussed may actually help to prevent uh, colectomy, uh, at least over the short term, over that three-month interval. And so we talked about these uh, kind of optimization strategies for that severe uh, UC patient. Again, emphasizing that um, cyclosporin is a good alternative, but you just have to think about your exit strategy associated with that therapy since it's not a good uh, maintenance therapy. So again, over the course of this symposium, we walked through what are the agents beyond anti-TNFs that we can use for treatment of moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. We talked about uh, the fact that we need a new definition of disease severity that takes into account a lot of these prognostic factors, not just disease activity, but really using disease severity. And then we talked about tailoring those therapies towards specific factors in subpopulations, using those clinical characteristics with the patients to use in a shared decision-making fashion the ability to come up with a plan that is effective for that patient. Um, and so really these data hopefully will be helpful to you in your practice. Uh, we certainly enjoyed the symposium and hope that, uh, that you did as well. Thank you.